Amen. You know, there's some times where we have um, messages or message series to where there is, uh, you know, there's a lot that, you know, it's really application. And then there's times where you may have a series to where it can be a lot of information. And so we always strive to have it application, right? I mean, you know, uh, information uh, without application, they say, is useless. And so, you know, the objective. Uh, having said all of that, we will talk a, about a lot of information tonight. There is a take-home, okay? Uh, so there is a walk-away. But to get to where we need to be, uh, there is a lot of information. And so I, I hope that, uh, you know, you'll learn something tonight uh, in the information phase. But the goal is not that we would just walk away with new info uh, or more info, or, you know, reminded info, but that we would take what God is using uh, as that information and apply it that would be useful uh, for edifying the kingdom. So, again, there will be lots of information. I know in your handout you got the page and a half, and you thought, man, this is going to be short. Uh, but I could have put a lot on there, but I didn't because I was hoping that you would instead listen. So as we endeavor to talk about life in the Spirit and the Holy Spirit, one of the things that you'll find in the next several weeks of our series, uh, a few more weeks of our series, is that it is, uh, it is impossible to nail down specifics uh, about certain aspects of the Spirit of God. And so as we talk about tonight uh, the way that God worked in the past versus the way that God works today and how we relate to that, it is in specific and direct uh, reference to the Holy Spirit's action in our lives. So years ago, a man went into a thrift shop. Now, I don't know if you're a thrift shopper. Me personally, uh, I, I don't like to go into, you know, places that are thrifty or uh, Hudson Salvage for that matter. I get very stressed out when I go in that store uh, because nothing is in order, at least in my mind. So, but there was a man who was shopping in 1991, several years ago, and he found an old wooden picture frame. And so he bought it for $4. And so he took it home. Now, if you, and I haven't, have never done this, but if you watch the Antique Roadshow or any other shows that are like that, lots of spinoffs, you see people who go in and they shop for these little trinkets or whatever, and then it turns out that they just bought Picasso's last work of art or something, right? So this man goes into this thrift shop. You can look this up. And, uh, and he buys this wooden frame, and he pays $4 for this wooden frame. So it, it happened at a flea market in Adamstown, Pennsylvania. He takes this wooden frame home, and he discovered behind the picture frame, there was an additional document. Now, it's in Pennsylvania, so you're probably starting to do the math here. Well, lo and behold, he removes the front picture, and behind that front picture that he paid $4 frame and all for was an original copy of the Declaration of Independence. Who would know, right? So this was in 1991. Now the Declaration of Independence for you history buffs was 1776, all right? Yeah, so 1776. And so we have this document now, a couple hundred years later, that this guy pays $4 for. So what does he do? Well, he sells it, of course. So he takes this document and he puts it up for bid, and it sold for $2.4 million. 
2.4 million, that's a pretty good return on your money. $4 and you get $2.4 million. Return on investment's massive there, right? And so here's this, this guy who finds this great thrift store find. Now, I, if you know me well, you know I like a good deal. I'm, you know, I'm always trying to get a good deal. I like a good deal. And so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking thumbs up for this guy. So I'm driving down the road the other day. And as, you know, God would in his great humor, I'm driving down the road. And I come across this, the Holy Spirit thrift shop. <laughs> I mean, what a gift, right? I'm about to preach on the Holy Spirit and I come across the Holy Spirit's thrift shop. Who wouldn't go in there? What would you find in such a thrift shop? I mean, think of that. So I really, I've had lots of fun this week with this. So I thought about it. And to be honest with you, I didn't stop because I was a little afraid. I mean, I don't really know what's going on in there. I don't know if I was going to, you know, be handed a snake or, I mean, I don't know. So so I didn't go in there. I'm not sure what they do at the Holy Spirit thrift shop. But if you would ever like to go... It is on 59 South, south of Foley, between Foley and Gulf Shores. So knock yourself out if you'd like to go figure out what's happening there. If you do go, I'd kind of like to know, so let me know. You know, I got to thinking about that. And I got to thinking about the uh, Holy Spirit thrift shop. And, you know, as we're studying the Holy Spirit, I, I was, you know, of course, thinking, preparing for our time tonight. And, and I thought about thrift shops in general. You know, thrift shops in general... Uh, the way that that works is we like to go in to things that other people have paid full price for and browse through their experiences in hopes that we would get a deal. Is that fair? Right? That we would say, you paid full price, I'm going to get what you paid $400 for 37 cents or whatever. Right? I'm going to browse your experience of what you paid full price for. And we only take the things that we desire, right? If you don't see something that, you know, this, when you go in a thrift shop, you're not trying to find one item, right? It's just a scavenger hunt. And then you find something, you're like, oh, well, that's a pretty good deal. You know, I could take it or leave it, but I'll give you $7 for it, right? And so you're just browsing through these experiences. But if we are not looking through the correct lens, for instance, the uh, antique roadshow, if I came across an antique I wouldn't know the difference, okay? Maybe some of you are versed in that. I wouldn't know the difference. But if we're not looking through the correct lens, well, what happens? We will miss what is right in front of us. We'll miss it. And so as I thought about this in our time tonight, you see, sometimes we don't see the value that is right beneath the surface. We don't see the value that's right beneath the surface. Here's this guy in Adamstown, Pennsylvania that goes in and he didn't know the value that was right beneath the surface, but he purchased something for $4 and ended up getting $2.4 million for something that someone else thought was worthless. You see, as we think about our own lives, what God did for us is he paid the ultimate price for us, something that the world said was worthless. For some of us, the world had pushed us away. For some of us, the world had thrown us away. For some of us, the world said, you are not worth $4. And yet God said, you are worth more than $4. I'm going to place my spirit inside of you. Right? But sometimes we don't see that value either for ourselves or maybe for those around us that is right beneath the surface. You see, many things have been said about the Holy Spirit. 
And you may have even witnessed or experienced some things that have been attributed to and certainly blamed on the Holy Spirit. But the question that I want us to talk about tonight is do we really understand the significance of what lies within us as believers? Now, we, we could spend a long time, and again, it, there's no way for it to be exhaustive, talking about the ways that the Spirit of God works in and through us. But I hope to come at it from a bigger picture perspective tonight. You see, the problem that this concept of thrift shop reveals within us is that we sometimes are stuck between the old and the new. That sometimes we revert back to the old. You see, change is difficult for a lot of people. My kids, especially when they were younger, not so much today, but when they were younger, uh, they didn't like change. And anytime something would change, they they just didn't like it. And so I remember I moved my office, relocated uh, in uh, several, several years ago. Noel was very young at the time, and he got really, really upset. And he cried because I was moving offices, which, you know, he doesn't come to my office, you know, very frequently. Uh, but he was upset about it because it was different. It was some change. And, and I know for a lot of people, change is very difficult. And, you know, I deal with people that are moving from uh, workforce to retirement. And so a lot of times that's a big transition. And so there's a big change. And, you know, when we experience this change, a lot of times it's very difficult for people to face that. It's because we like things the way that they've always been. When I when I thought about this, I thought about the fact that, that that saying right there, we like things the way that they've always been, that saying right there has prevented many people and many churches from being involved in the work of God. That we like things the way that they've always been. I've been a part of churches, unfortunately, before, maybe fortunately, that God used in my life that would say, we've never done it that way before, so we're not going to do it that way now. Does that sound like God? But you see, oftentimes we're guilty ourselves of being in that same boat. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says in verse 17, the scriptures on the screen, also on the very end of your handout, all of the scriptures that I'll reference tonight are in order there, so you can go back and look at them. Therefore, if anyone, Paul says, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Which is a phenomenal verse about what God has done and the work that God has done in our lives. However, how many of us would raise our hand and say, when I got saved, instantly all of the old was gone and everything was brand new in my life? Probably no one. Right? Because what did God begin to do in our lives? He began to transform us into the image of his son, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And so as God began to transform us into the image of his son, the old began to peel away and the new began to be revealed. And so, again, that's the goal, that's the objective. But so many times we struggle with this reality. We know that God has declared that all things become new and that all old things pass away. But sometimes we really We really like the old way, or at least we think we do. We struggle with getting away from the old way. You see, the old way for a lot of people when it comes to God is that we think if we do things, then we get things. 
right? This is how we relate to God. Or that we believe, and a lot of people believe this, that our actions determine God's response. That if I do something that makes God happy, he'll bless me. And if I do something that makes God mad, then he will do something bad to me. And we're held captive by these belief systems oftentimes. And certainly we're held captive by our own sinfulness. When the Bible says that uh, we can be free, who the Son sets free is free indeed, that we can be free, and yet oftentimes believers don't live and walk and act as though they are free. Even you may would say, you know, sometimes I don't feel very free from the sin that always tries to get me. And so as believers, God knew for us that the old way was insufficient. He knew that the old way in many different ways wouldn't get us to where God wants us to be. And so throughout the whole of the Old Testament, I'm sorry, of the Old Covenant, there was always one trouble, that man's heart was not right with God. You see, that's the trouble then, that's the trouble now. That has not necessarily changed. But tonight what I want to talk about for just a few minutes is I want to talk to you about the old way, the old covenant. And I want to talk to you about the new way or the new covenant and how God has instituted that and specifically what that means for us. In other words, what you're going to be thinking as we're walking through this tonight is, am I still living in the old covenant? Am I still living in the old way? Do I believe and relate to God in the way that they did in the Old Testament versus the way that they do or God desires for us to in the New Testament? So as we look at this, uh, you know, again, these, uh, we don't have time to dig into all these concepts, but the Bible is divided into covenants. And so there is certainly the Davidic and the Abrahamic and the, uh, the Mosaic covenant in the Old Testament. So we have the Old Covenant and, of course, the New Testament with the New Covenant. Now, the Old Covenant was where God had written the law on tablets with Moses. And so Moses, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 13, the Bible says, He declared to you His covenant, which He commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And He wrote them on two tablets of stone. And so what God did is He established a way of life in order for people to live in the Old Covenant. We all do the same thing. So, you know, this is all very uh, interpersonally related today, that we establish routines. And so God established a routine in the Old Covenant. The problem was, is again, man's heart was not right with God. And the, the reason that man's heart was not right with God is the problem that we've had from the very beginning is sin was present. And so sin is and has always been a very, very big deal to God. And so what God did in order to atone for sin in the Old Testament, this is pre-Jesus. And so hopefully this will tie, if you don't know some of these things, the Old and the New Testament together. So in the Old Testament, Jesus has not come yet. So how how was sin atoned for? Well, there was a sacrificial system that God instituted that would temporarily atone for sin. And so you would bring an animal to be sacrificed to, quote, pay for your sin. But this was never sufficient because it was something that had to be done all of the time. Every year you would have to come and make payment again. Now, another difference that we see in the Old Covenant is that priest. If I were to say, you know, to Brett, I saw Brett today at lunch. And if I was to say to to Brett, hey, pray for me, well, 
Brett could instantly pray to God for me, right? He could go and intercede on my behalf. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to talk to God, if you wanted to be in the presence of God, well, it wasn't quite as easy. You see, in the Old Testament, only priests were allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God resided. And so in the Old Covenant, what did this result in? Well, think about it. Only certain people can go into the presence of God. My sin is always before me because I'm always having to make sacrifice for the things that I've done wrong. And there's these laws that I'm supposed to keep, but I can't keep because I'm human and sinful. And so imagine yourself in this Old Testament way of thinking. It leaves you, as I thought about this this past few weeks, it leaves you hopeless, right? Because you can't do anything about it, and you haven't seen the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. The the sins of the past, present, and future haven't been atoned for. And so here's this hopeless state that the people in the Old Testament are abiding by. Now, I thought about this, and I thought, you know, how can I relate this to you? And I thought, how is it, wouldn't it be amazing if someone from the Old Testament could stand before us today and say, wait a minute, time out. You can talk to God anytime you want. Well, hang on just a second. So Jesus died once for all, but yet every year I have to go and make atonement for my sins through animal sacrifice, and there's very specific things. Wait wait, wait a second. Well, Well, tell me all the amazing things that God's doing in your life. Tell me what it's like to experience the presence of God all of the time. But I think a lot of people would say, well, I mean, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not, all, that, it's not all that different. I mean, you know, I, I just talk to God sometimes, and, you know, I, I do have the presence of God inside of me, and, and you didn't have that. But, but it's not that different. You see what I'm saying, how ridiculous it, it, it is for us to think about that? But, but think about what they're experiencing. It's this continual striving never to achieve, strip them of all of the hope, that anything would ever get better. I mean, think about it. One of the things I love in my life, and my family knows this, and my kids know this, I love looking forward. I love, what are you looking forward to? That is probably the number one question in our family. What are you looking forward to? And a while back, I realized, you know what? That's not a Matt thing. That's a God thing. Everything in your life is based on the future, right? Your life is lived predicated upon the hope of the return of Jesus Christ, right? If you're a believer, that's what it's based on. And so everything in our life is forward-looking. Yeah, I know it's bad now, but it's going to get better, right? I mean, look around, turn the news on. I know it's bad now, but it's going to get better. Look, I know that my health is not what I want it to be today, but I know one day I'll stand before God and I will be made whole. Everything is based on the future expectation of what God has declared will happen. Well, as an old covenant uh, believer, guess what? I'm not really sure how that's going to turn out. Jesus hasn't come yet. And so this death, death becomes the only peace that one could imagine in the Old Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7, the Bible says, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone... So that's what they thought of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, that there was this ministry of death that that they again, had this no-hope scenario. And so this old covenant, which was never intended to give life, it was only intended to point them to the need for a Savior. 
it brought, it brought nothing, uh, forth nothing but death. And so here's this old covenant that, again, it seemed to be that death was the only release, which is why, if you've ever wondered, I believe, Matt's opinion, uh, is one of the reasons why you rarely read anything about eternal life in the Old Testament. They didn't really have much of a concept of that. And so the death of Christ then shows the true nature of this old covenant. Well, how does it do that? Well, in Jeremiah 31, um, and you can read when you go home, verse 31 through 34, but in verse 31 it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And so in the middle of the Old Testament, in the middle of their misery of thinking, how do we get out of this? God sends a prophet named Jeremiah and he says, there is hope. There is hope that there will be a new covenant, he says. He says in verse 31, this new covenant will come forth even though, what does he say in verse 32? My covenant you broke. So what does that mean? In other words, you failed at our agreement. And in my sovereignty and grace and mercy, I'm going to give you a new one. That's grace in the Old Testament. That's God saying, you broke the covenant. Now, originally, if you broke a covenant, what would you do? Okay, I'm out. You, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain, so I'm out. But that's not what God did. God doubled down and said, no, there's going to be a new covenant. Well, what will this new covenant do? Well, the new covenant will involve an internalization of God's law. So instead of the tablet written on uh, tablet, or the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone, God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write this on your heart. In verse 33, he says, this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. How do you know what is right or wrong? Because God has placed his law on our hearts. And so this internalization, he says in verse 33, I will write it on their hearts. So this new law would not be this external behavior change, but it would be internal. It would be written on their hearts. And in other words, this new nature would guide them from doing what is right and wrong. So not only was it internal, but number two, God's new covenant also involves a provision for sin. So now we're starting to feel the hope of this new covenant. He says, I will remember, in verse 34, their sin no more. Pastor Tony talked a few weeks ago about uh, how the Bible declares that God uh, removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. And so hope begins to appear. So, well, when did this new covenant take place? When did this happen? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Bible says in the same way also he took, verse 23, I'm sorry, verse 25, in the same way he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's tie this all together then. So what happened was the Old, the old Covenant 
had no hope of the future. The old covenant was based on works. And if you did, well, then the reward, the obedience reward uh, was supposed to come forth. But in the new covenant, what happened? Well, Jesus came forth and said, okay, you can't do that. You can't achieve that. Even though you broke the covenant, I'm going to give you a new covenant. So in this new covenant, Jesus made it clear that it was instituted by him. It was birthed in the resurrection that brought Jesus Christ from the dead. And so as we, as we see this new covenant, then as, how does that relate then to the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit? Well, in the Old Covenant, you see the Spirit of God periodically. For the sake of time, we won't go through, you know, a lot of the times. But, you know, originally or initially, where do you see the Spirit of God? Well, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. And so in Genesis 1, you see, Let us make man in our own image. And so you see some hints towards the presence of the Spirit of God. And then, uh, but the Old Testament, this Old Covenant, was all based on what? works, bringing the lamb to sacrifice, only being, you know, being a certain uh, level, if you will, to be able to go into, you had to be a priest, to be able to go into the Holy of Holies. But the new, the new covenant comes, and what is it based on? It's based on experience, the experience of the power of eternal life. This new covenant replaces the external ritual systems of the old covenant so let's tie this all together stay with me i know lots of information we're glazing over now right how does that relate to us today because oftentimes what we do in our walk with god is we become ritualistic and god says i sent my son jesus so that this new covenant of grace would be instituted so that what so that we would experience God, not that we would just obey God, because in the new covenant, well, look what happened in the new covenant. Our sins are forgiven permanently. This is not an annual thing. It says in verse 26 of Hebrews 9 that he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That sin is put away permanently, that we can know God directly Matthew 27 51 that the curtain of the temple was torn in two so that now we can go in directly to God and then number three the law is written on our hearts this is where the Holy Spirit enters the picture for the believer that that the law is written on what does that mean that the law is written on our hearts. Well, in Acts chapter 2, what happens? It says in verse 1, uh, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. It says, in divided tongues, verse 3, as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so here we see the arrival of the Holy Spirit of God. Now last week, Pastor Tony went through a list of uh, uh, the Holy Spirit and the things that he does and, and how it relates to us. But what I want you to see 
tonight is the difference between the exterior and the interior. You see, ultimately, that's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And so let's rewind for a second. You see, we started out by asking this question. Am I living in the old covenant or am I living in the new covenant? Now, if you know, if you've experienced any Bible, you would say, well, of course, we're living in the new covenant. But are we acting that way? You see, the new covenant is based on experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. It's just like the Declaration of Independence that sat below the surface. If you are a believer here tonight, what has happened in your life is that God has implanted His Spirit inside of you. And so no longer do we go to a certain place to be in the presence of God, but we have direct access because of what God has done with the Holy Spirit inside of us. But what we often do is that we allow our traditions or we allow our experiences or even our culture to derail us from experiencing that. You see, all these promises, all of the provisions that God has made, has made it available. Imagine if this this man in our story, this this, uh, at the beginning, that he took that picture frame home and he sat that picture frame on his desk and he left it there never to find out what was beneath the surface. Wouldn't you say a lot of us do the same thing? That we have the opportunity to experience the full power of what God has in store for us. That we have the availability of all the promises that God has made available to us. But what do we do? So oftentimes we live based on what we've always done before, on the traditions, or even the culture of which it may tell us to do that. You see, what the Holy Spirit has done is the Holy Spirit has made God personal. You see, that's the difference at the end of the day between the old and the new. If someone were to ask you to explain tonight's message, you would say, well, we learned the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is that God made himself personal. You see, that is where we run from the traditions and we run to the experience. That's where we move from, I've always done it this way before, to God, what would you have me do in this situation? You see, the Holy Spirit is the personal embodiment of Christ. He is the dwelling of the the, uh, Spirit of God inside of every believer. Said another way, the Holy Spirit is the personal version of God. You see, the Bible says, what about God? The Bible says that God is a spirit and that we uh, who worship Him, John chapter 3, will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Moses said, can I see you? And he says, well, you can't, but I can, hold, I can move you away, and as I walk by, you can see the back, right? So, so as we think about God, and we think about God in the Old Testament, God was someone who provided for them. God was someone who always paved the way for them. But in the New Testament, it wasn't someone who did for you. It is not only that, but it is someone who is with you. Right? John chapter 14, verse 17, even the spirit of truth, this is Jesus talking. He says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him, listen to me, nor knows him. 
But what does he say? He says, you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. He dwells with you and he will be in you. Believer, tonight, let me ask you, is that your experience of the Holy Spirit of God? That he would be the personal version of who God is. You see, to understand the impact of God's transforming presence, we must be able to see the world through this new lens. Not that we would say, okay, here's, what, here's a, something that is in front of me, a person, a conversation, a situation, a circumstance. How do I need to approach this based on what I've always done before? Opposed to approaching the situation by saying, here's this situation in front of me, God, what do you think we should do here? Do you see the difference? That we oftentimes, we approach things abstractly opposed to approaching things personally. Think think about the Old Testament. I'm not getting a a complete buy-in yet. I can tell by your faces. Think about the Old Testament, okay? What happened in the Old Testament? Think Think about the miracles that happened in the Old Testament. Here's what a lot of people say. Well, if God was really a personal God. How come he's not doing the same miracles that he did in the Old Testament? Raise your hand. Don't don't do it. If you've ever thought that, right? How many times have we said that? You've probably thought that. Well, wait a minute. Why did God do all of these things in the Old Testament, but he doesn't do those things in the New Testament? Think about it. Well, why didn't he do those things today? And a lot of people have a lot of reasons, but I, I have a theory here tonight, okay? I want you to think about what happened in the Old Testament. Well, in the Old Testament... God was leading the Israelites out, so what did he do? He parted the Red Sea. That's pretty miraculous. You think about all the plagues that happened in Egypt. That's pretty miraculous. You think about Elijah and, uh, and the, the false prophets, and what did God do? He rained fire down, and over 400 of them were consumed. That's pretty miraculous. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. That's pretty miraculous. right? There's, there are so many things that happen in the Old Testament, and you're like, Wow. Man, I don't want to be Lot's wife. I'm not looking back ever, right? You, you think about those things in the Old Testament. Then you get to the New Testament, and the physical embodiment of God, Jesus, is there. And yet, what happens? Well, he's able to be arrested. They're able to suppress some of the things that the disciples wanted to do. They were certainly persecuted. And you're thinking, now, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, you parted the seas. In the Old Testament, you rained fire down from heaven. But in the New Testament, you're letting people put handcuffs on the Son of God. Have you ever thought about that? Think about it. And so as we, as we look, you see in the New Testament, well, what happened? Well, the miracles become much less grandiose. But what happens to those miracles? They become much more personal. They become much more personal. Think about Lazarus. In John chapter 11. Do you think Lazarus wanted to strike down? You think Lazarus wanted Jesus to strike down anybody who had ever said anything bad to him? Or do you think Lazarus wanted Jesus to raise him from the dead? Right? It changes perspective. It becomes much more personal. Think about the blind man that Jesus healed. Spit in the sand. Washed his eyes. All of a sudden he could see again. This wasn't a grand scale. What was this? This was one-on-one. This was personal. 
Think about the woman who had the issue of blood. What did Jesus do? He had a one-on-one encounter with her. And so what you see a lot of, and I know this is, you know, we're big concepts tonight because this is hard to nail down. What we see in the Old Testament is we see a God of the nations. And what do we see in the New Testament? We see a God of the individual, right? That God becomes personal. And so as we talk about and we think about the Holy Spirit of God, we have to approach it from a personal perspective. You see, Jesus stated that having the Holy Spirit inside of me would be better than having him beside me. To which we would say, not so sure about that. It'd be pretty awesome if you were standing right here beside me. But why is that? Why do we say that? Because why? Because we still want a God of the Old Testament to do the things that prove who he is. Not that I would be involved in any of the cost. Think about that. Think about the thrift shop that we talked about. I want to go in and I want to get for half price what you paid full price. I want you to do the work, but I want to benefit from that. And what Jesus is saying here is, no, I'm going to place the Spirit of God inside of you. And so if you want the personal experience of the Holy Spirit of God, what do we have to do? We have to tune into that. We have to peel away the things that are on the outside, just like that picture frame, and say, now, wait a minute, there's more to this than meets the eye. So how do we do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 3, this is what the Bible says. It says, His divine power, Peter writes here, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You've heard that before. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. But look what he says in verse 4. He says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. For what reason? So that through them you may become, listen to this, partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What Peter is telling us. Now this is Peter writing. This is Peter who walked side by side with Jesus. This is Peter. And he says that through these promises that we may become partakers of the divine nature. Said another way, this power that God has given us has made us companions with the divine nature or with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the question that we would ask. Well, what does that look like for me? Is that, is, that, is that present in my life? Is that is that evident in my life? Does it appear? Am I walking in step with the Spirit of God? Well, I want to give us a couple of walkaways tonight. So we made it all the way through the history lesson, Old Covenant to New Covenant. And we get to our walk away. So is that, what does that look like? Here's Peter saying that we're these partakers of the divine nature. So as I thought about this and prayed, you know, God, what does that, what does that look like for us? Because here, here's the reality. We, we live in the 21st century, okay? And everything in our lives, everything 
is external. Everything. Drive down I-10, there's 1,500 billboards. External. Everything is based on uh, external stimulation. Everything's based on external draw. Everything is based on externals. And so much so to the fact that even in our own lives, and, and I'm not talking about vanity when I say externals. I'm talking about outside. That everything is based on uh, the external of trying to draw us into that. It's based on what we see. The Bible says that it's not just what we see, right? But it's that what we don't see that's eternal. And so often in your life and in my life, we're all guilty of this. We only operate on what we see. We only operate on the external, on what's in front of us. If you're in D group uh, over the next few weeks, you're going to practice the spiritual disciplines of silence. And you're going to practice the spiritual disciplines of solitude. Now, for a lot of people, you may say, well, that's very, very easy. Well, well, try it. For most people, there's not five minutes of silence in your entire day. Why is that? Because we are so accustomed to external stimulation. Solitude. We can't stand to be alone. For years in our small group, I've challenged our group, drive with the radio off. What does God have to say? How would we ever know if we always had these external stimulations going on? And we say, you know, this, I, I know, I know when we started tonight, you said, man, this old covenant, that's not for me. That doesn't have anything to do with me. But I bet if I followed you around for a couple of weeks, we would both conclude that, you know what? I am doing a lot of external stuff. And I'm not really connecting to what God is desiring to do inside of me. You see, a couple of the walkaways tonight, the more external stimulation that we have, the more difficult it is going to be to focus on the internal work of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you're always engaged in externals, you will never pay attention to the internals. You see, it's easy to show up it's easy to show up to church and appear like everything's all put together. But the reality is in a group this size that there's at least a few of us tonight that we don't have it all together. That we're hanging by a thread. And as long as you continue to operate in the external, you're never going to change anything. Nothing is going to get any better or different. Until we turn inside and we say, God, what is it that's going on inside of me? Because if you don't fix the inside, just like Pastor Tony talked about Sunday morning with words, our words are just a manifestation of what's happening in our hearts. And it's the same thing with this external stimulation, that if we consistently, and that's what the devil wants. Listen, what the devil wants you to do is to constantly be distracted, to be distracted of what God wants to do in your life, to be distracted of the still, small voice that God is speaking to you. Some commentators have interpreted that still, small voice with Elijah as the word silence. That in the silence he heard from God. You say, I'm not, I'm not plugging in. I'm not experiencing what you're talking about in this Holy Spirit experience. It's because there's no silence in your life. If you're not listening, you're not going to hear. And as long as there's noise, you're not listening. You see, the new covenant tonight, my goal wasn't to motivate you to change your behavior. I don't want you to go from saying, well, I'm not going to focus on the inside. Now I'm just going to focus on, uh, I don't want to focus on the outside. I just want to focus on the inside. 
No, that's, that's not my goal tonight. My goal is that you would change your confidence. Because you and I are so often bought into what the flesh says is, I can, I can, I can, I can do this, I can fix this, I can be what God wants me to be. No, we can't. My confidence can't be in what is external. My confidence can't be in the next election. God help us. My confidence can't be in my abilities. My confidence can't be external. My confidence can't be in what you do for me. It has to be in what God has done inside of me. You see, we're so captivated by behavior. We're so captivated by recognition. We're so captivated by credit. We were talking yesterday, and uh, I, you know, me and the other pastors were talking, and I said, you know what? People aren't awesome if they have to tell you they're awesome. You ever met somebody who is always like, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I'm pretty nice. You know, I, mean, you, know, I, I, you know, I go to the gym. I can lift a lot of weight. Or, I, you, know, I can, you know, I can do, I make a lot of money or whatever. You know, if you have to tell me that, it's not true, right? If you're awesome, I'm going to see that you're awesome. And you don't have to tell me that you're awesome. Do tall people walk around? I'm tall. Look at me. I'm tall. Of course they don't. You just look at him like, wow, that guy's 6'8", or whatever, right? You don't have to declare that. You don't have to declare that. It's the same thing I thought, you know, unfortunately my mind got to go, and I thought about marriages. You know, marriages are, are not great if you have to tell me that your marriage is great. I can see it, right? You don't have to tell me you love your spouse. I should see you love your spouse, right? You don't have to say that. How about, you know, I deal with finances a lot. People who tell you that they have money don't have any money. That's how that works. They're pretending that they have. People who really have money, they don't tell you they have money. They don't say that. And it's the same thing spiritually. People who God is working in their life don't have to tell you that God is working in their life. Right? A saying that has been rattling around in my heart uh, and I don't even remember where it came from, but it just came back up here a couple months ago and just keeps coming up and up and up. Uh, but th- there was an old preacher who said, light yourself on fire and they'll come from miles around to watch you burn. And I thought, man, right? Think about your own walk. Think about your own. What if you stop worrying about the externals? If you stop worrying about what your neighbor's doing or your friend's doing or whoever's doing and you said, you know what, God, I want you to light my soul on fire for you. I want to be so in tune with your Holy Spirit that people will come from miles around to see your glory. I was captivated by the Asbury Revival a few months ago, captivated. And my prayer and desire was that it would spread like wildfire. And they stopped it for, you know, for many reasons. But you can't stop the move of God. You can't stop what God is doing inside of your heart. And when God is doing something inside of your heart, everyone will notice. God will be all over you. That's my prayer certainly for me, but that's my prayer for you, is that we would be a body of believers that God was all over, that it would come out eventually. As I was studying, I came across Proverbs 16.2. It says, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. Externally, man, we're looking good. 
But in, verse two, in, in the latter part of the verse, it says it's the Lord who weighs the spirit. Do you know that the word for spirit there is the Hebrew word for the Greek word for the Holy Spirit? It is God who weighs the spirit. In other words, he measures the, the effectiveness or the allowance, if you will, of the spirit of God in our lives. That he's aware of what we are doing or what we're allowing to come out of us. It's the, the New Testament pneuma is the Greek equivalent of this Hebrew word. You see, in other words, the, the Lord, he judges people based on why they act. It's the inside. And so what this ought to do is call us to this deeper and higher reality that our outward religious effort should be a result of the inward habitation, the Spirit of God. Does, does the Holy Spirit habitate you? Right? Does, does the Holy Spirit captivate you? Are you experiencing what God has in store for you? So how do we do that? How do we let the external stop being so attractive? Well, the answer is stop. It's just stop. Busy is not getting it done. To take the next step in, the, in your walk with God, you need silence and you need solitude. So what I would challenge you to do over the next couple of days is to find quiet. Maybe get up early and you say, well, my house is crazy, i got a bunch of kids, there's always noise. Well, get up early. Beat them, beat them getting up. Right? Stay up late. A lot of times for me, I stay up late. My family goes to bed. I stay up late and study if I'm studying. I may get up early sometimes and, and do the same thing. you got to win, right? You want it? You want it? Then you got to do something about it. So the external is always going to be there. Don't worry. The billboard's going to be there on 10 tomorrow, right? There's always going to be an external draw. And so if you constantly succumb to the external, you will never plug into the internal of which God has in store for you. You need more you and God time in your life. That's the answer. How do you get away from external? You spend more time with the internal. And then number two is very simple. Number two is that you submit to the work that he wants to do inside of you. Here's here's what's going to happen. When you find yourself in silence and solitude with God... Here's what you're going to realize. I'm worse off than I thought I was. And he loves me more than I knew he did. That's what you'll realize. That I'm worse off than I thought I was. And that he loves me more than I knew he did. Because in the midst of God saying in Jeremiah 31, you broke the old covenant. He said, but I'm going to make a new one. And here's what you'll find in your silence and solitude with God is that in the midst of you confessing and realizing the things that break the heart of God, that you'll begin to have the heart of God. That you'll begin to realize that God does love me in spite of who I am. That God still can use me in spite of what I've done. And so the things that you didn't think were real bad, you'll realize, yeah, you know what, that was a big deal to God. But then you'll realize he's a big God who loves me more than those things that I've done wrong to him and against him. 
Right? Paul didn't realize. You say, well, I'm not doing these things to God. Well, that's what Paul said in Acts 9. I didn't realize that the things that I was doing to you. And, and Jesus said, you are persecuting me when he met Paul on the road to Damascus. And the same is true for us. You're going to realize, you know, there's things in my life that I thought they were okay. And you're not going to realize those things until you have time to experience the Spirit of God examining those things in your life. If you don't listen, you'll never know. But when you find that out, here's the flesh, what the flesh is going to do. I already know this. The flesh is going to say, well, how can we justify this? Well, we can't tell anyone. Look, no one knows. And you're going to go through these litany of things in your mind. I have an internal critic. I know very well how these things work. And you're going to go through a litany of these things in your mind. And what you have to say is, that's enough. Stop. I'm not going to think through those things because I didn't, I can't fix these problems. You have to submit to the reality that God can do something about it. Submit to that work that he wants to do inside of you. Admit the reality that, in fact, you are broken, that you have been bowing to the externals in your life, and you haven't plugged in to the power of God that is directly beneath the service, the surface. You see, he said another way, stop looking for a deal in the thrift shop. There is no shortcut to godliness. But the good news is that God wants to do that work inside of us and that he's willing to walk the road with us to get there. You see, what we want is we want the shortcut. A verse that God's used in my life the last 12 years. 2 Samuel 24, 24. David was doing a census. God told him not to do it. David did it anyway. Then David repented. And David wanted to pay God back. He wanted to make it right. So he wanted to buy a field and sacrifice it to God. And so the guy who owned the field wanted to give it to David. And David said, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So what does that mean for you and for me? It's going to cost. It cost Jesus on the cross. It's going to cost me and you. To submit to the realities of the internal and to reject the external, it's going to cost. You see, you and I, we need to confront the sin that lingers in our life over and over. How do we plug into the internal? Well, first of all, you've got to deal with the sin that is often present in your life. Is there a sin in your life that just keeps coming back up? You need to deal with that. You need to deal with that. That means that you have not experienced the freedom of uh, the power over sin. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. That is not what I said. I'm saying that you have the power of the presence of the Spirit of God inside of you. And the Bible says what? That we are more than conquerors through Him who saves us. Romans 8, 37. Okay? So what I'm saying is that you have access to power to overcome that. So if it is overcoming you, then you've got to change your your strategy. Because you can't do it. I can't do it. And then we need to escape the things in our life that draw us away from God. So in other words, if it's not leading you to God, then stop doing it. People, places, television shows, things, hobbies, fill in the blank. 
Submit to the work that he wants to do inside of you. If you want full access to the power that God has made available for you, then you have to submit to that. You have to submit to that. You need to let God do a work inside of you. If you want to be lit on fire so that they'll come from miles around to watch you burn, you've got to submit to that. You see, here is the reality tonight as we close. It will cost you. But you will clear the way for God to do through you what he has always desired to do. And that is to walk with you daily through his spirit that he has entrusted to you and to me as the amazing gift of his perpetual presence. He has granted us access to his perpetual presence. So my my prayer and certainly my plea for you tonight is ignore the external. Submit to the internal work that God wants to do in your heart. Amen? Let's pray tonight. God, thank you for the reality of the work of what you accomplish, even in spite of our kicking and screaming sometimes. Thank you for the redemption that you have accomplished.